This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha in caverns deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 701 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I'm your head, number one, my name is Matt Baum. I'm your head, number two, the internet's Joe Patrick, and it's time for another Cosmic Long Box episode where we dissect eight classic comic books based on a theme, and this theme comes oversized and features all manner of cover gimmicks. After that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week's new comics. But now, it's time to climb into our holofoil, glow-in-the-dark protective suits, and dive into the unstable time portal that is the Cosmic Longbox. It's back-issue review time in the Ziggurat. As loyal listeners will recall, we just celebrated our 700th episode and it got the Cosmic Longbox thinking about comic book milestones. But Joe, what's a comic book milestone issue? I'm so glad you asked, Matt. Milestone issues are typically a celebration of a series making it to a certain issue number. Issue 50, issue 100, issue 500, for example. But it can also be something like the 500th appearance of a character in their series, as you'll see in a bit here. These milestone issues promised extra pages, epic character and story developments, pinups, and of course, cover gimmicks. Not always, but Later sometimes. <laughs> Matt, why don't you start us off with your first milestone? So you're going to start in the 80s with yours, which is fine. There were milestones back then, but I feel like the 90s were a golden age for comic book milestones because literally... Everything became a milestone, baby. They did not care. I mean, we consider the time frame of like the comic book industry. Right. Post crisis DC. By the time you get to nineteen ninety, you know, three, four, five, everything that launched in nineteen eighty seven is like bing bang boom bang boom oh yeah hitting the big landmarks and oh, so we yeah. got a lot of them we're gonna start in 1994 with green lantern volume three number 50 from dc it's written by ron mars with art by daryl banks here is your solicit this is courtesy of comics.org and let me tell you nobody can make a comic sound more boring than these guys i love this <laughs> a power mad hal jordan attacks oa and the guardians enlist sinestro to stop him Hal defeats Sinestro and kills him by breaking his neck. Kilowog also tries to stop Hal, but Hal kills him also. Hal destroys his central power battery, killing all of the Guardians except Ganthet. Ganthet travels to Earth and gives the last power ring to Kyle Rayner to become the last Green Lantern. Well done, Joe. I mean, <laughs> that is all. None of that is incorrect. Yeah, That's there it is. Correct. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> You can't argue with any of that. Green Lantern 50 is really a litmus test where readers will find out if they love Ron Mars's run or hate it so much that they start the first group of comic trolls. I am firmly... No, I don't think that's true, but I, <laughs> I, I appreciate where you're at. I am firmly in the pro-Mars camp, but honestly, I never read a lot of his Hal Jordan stuff until much later. I picked up the Kyle series because it seemed like a great place to jump on, and I never looked well, back from there. Ron Mars didn't write Hal. 
right. until he, Emerald Twilight. He came 48. on like to yeah. destroy Hal, essentially. He was hired by DC to usher in the transition between the two Green Lanterns. Yeah, and this is why all the trolls hate him. What was the name oh, of the group? Yeah. The Heat. Hal's oh. Emerald Attack Team. H E A T Heat. Jackasses. But yeah. I will tell you, this comic book is exactly how a milestone should be handled. And it starts with a kick-ass first page. Like they should teach comic book milestoning using this comic book. It's fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I minored in comic book milestoning <laughs> at uh, Metro Community College. Mars's script spends most of its time in a knockdown drag out brawl between Hal and Sinestro as the guardians watch in horror. Banks art is very solid. He does a great job on the brutality and has some fantastic splash pages. Love or hate what came after, you cannot deny the Green Lantern 50 was a hell of a ride, complete with a glow-in-the-dark cover, the first appearance of Parallax, the first appearance of Kyle Rayner as a Green Lantern. What more could a GL fan in the 90s ask for? This is just a huge bite. <laughs> it's so fun. Well, I mean, a GL fan in the 90s probably could have asked for their hero not uh, being turned into a murderous supervillain. For but. sure. but And that's what's so kick-ass about this, though, like in retrospect, looking back. Because, I mean, at that time, sure, we shook things up. But it wasn't like it was, you know, later in the 90s and the 2000s where, like, don't worry, that character will be back in two weeks or a year or whatever. Like, yeah, people I mean, were legit worried, you just ruined Hal Jordan. You just ruined everything about the Green Lanterns. And it is so ballsy. This comic book is ballsy as hell, and nobody was ready for it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, okay. So let me just start here. It's a buy it for me. I love this un- without reservation. I love Ron Mars's entire run on Green Lantern. Oh, yeah. I love absolutely. it. Ron Mars and Daryl Banks, but Ron Mars especially, made me a fan of this corner of the DCU and all of the mythology for and all sure. of the lore. And uh, that started, you know, two issues prior to this in issue 48. That's the first appearance of Kyle Rayner. He's on the beach with his girlfriend yeah. and they see they see a falling star and blah, blah, blah. And it all culminates here. And I'm telling you what, this issue is intense, man. Yeah. Hell with all the rings, for one thing, is such an iconic image that it's like beyond. And it's like the very first page. You open it up and Hal Jordan's yeah. standing there with 10 rings on his fists, hunched over, yelling at Sinestro. And he's like, bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> like, Whoa. Well, and like, and I think issue 49 is the one where that's the actual cover where it's Hal looking crazy with his hands like this. Yeah. And, and it's just like, those images are seared into my mind. Uh, and the fight with Helen Sinestro is so, is so buck wild. And all of this, all like the, normally I'm like, oh, here we go. The hero, dis- or hero, but the protagonist decides, okay, he falls for it, right? He's like, okay, villain, I'll give my advantage away and we'll fight and see who's really the best. Yeah. Don't ta- ever do that. He takes don't off all that. the rings but one and he's like, let's go. Ring versus ring. Yeah. And don't, he's yeah, still, just don't do it. He still kicks the shit out of Sinestro. Yes. <laughs> uh, but that that fight is so, so satisfying. And like yeah. it's funny. And we're going to talk about this um, in my first review as well. It's funny to think that before this, Sinestro was kind of a non-entity. He hadn't been around for a long time. He had been trapped in the power battery. He hadn't, he wasn't like, he was always the Hal Jordan's nemesis, right? Hal Jordan's greatest nemesis, but 
he hadn't been the focus of any storylines for a long time. And Ron Mars brought him back. And from then on, and then especially after Green Lane and Rebirth, like Sinestro became one of DC's biggest villains. Yeah. And the same thing happened to a whole host of Batman villains, which we're going to talk about in there a second. Uh, the fight with Kilowog is heartbreaking. Uh, the stupid guardians being stupid and making all the wrong decisions constantly, even though they are omnipotent super beings. Yeah. You can always count on the guardians to be colossal shitheads. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're like shield, you know, like they're here to do a job and they're supposed yeah. to be really good at it. And they're terrible at it. <laughs> you don't think you think that you don't think that 10 of you, is uh, is maybe going to do a better job at rebuilding the core and preserving the uh, integrity of the universe than just giving it all to one guy? Not Come important. On. They were desperate. The whole thing was yes, going on. Come right. on. Yeah, they Jesus, were desperate. Joe. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I digress. This is great. This is a great issue. The kickoff of a great run. It's a buy it for me. There are some things that now reading it after years removed that I wonder I wonder, and I'm just going to pose this to you as a fellow fan. Okay. Considering the Green Lantern rings are just, they're controlled by will, right? So the, the rings can do whatever. I think I see where you're going here. <laughs> the rings can, I'm sure you do. The rings can do whatever the users will sure. dictate. Yeah. So will having 10 rings really do you any more good than just one ring? I mean, if you want to say that one ring amplifies your willpower into this thing. Okay. Maybe. Adding nine amplifies your willpower by nine, making you making your constructs and whatnot nine times more powerful, ideally. But like, if you really want to get into it, like, how come they weren't just like, okay, ring, stop his heart? No, ring, you stop his heart. No, ring, you stop his heart. Well, because you know, like, they couldn't, <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Uh, it, well, except he does incinerate yeah. Kilowog. Yes, so I don't know, man. I, like, I don't know. I don't know. The rings had all these restrictions, right? They couldn't be used for deadly force. But I don't know. Hal stripped Hal's all that away. Over, he stripped. Hal's will overrode it. Yeah. But also, like he kind of hacked them right. too. He kind of hacked the ring, so they were doing a stuff little, little that they really weren't supposed to do. And back to the actual content. That's just something I was that was buzzing in the back of my brain when Sinestro confronts Hal or Kilowog rather confronts Hal at the very end, and he's like. You say you didn't kill anybody but Sinestro, but you left all those people out in space or wherever they were with just enough charge, just enough power to survive. What do you think is going to happen to them if you go absorb the power battery? And the conflict in Hal's face that Banks is able to deliver yeah. and the beats that Mars puts in the script. It's where great. And it's just like, I can't think about that now. Like, like Hal is gone. Yeah, it's great. And you can see he's suffering. Like, it's not as cut and dry as these heat jackasses wanted you to think it was. Ron Mars had Hal Jordan suffering through this whole thing. And, and going, it's into, true. going into the parallax stuff, they absolutely sell that in the end of it. When he's just like, I was wrong. I totally screwed up. I did it all wrong. And he gives his own life. Like, man, I love this storyline. <laughs> You made a note here, but didn't mention it. Uh, I love the fact that Kyle is wearing a Nine Inch Nails T-shirt, but it's just a, <laughs> it's just a black T-shirt that Daryl Banks wrote Nine Inch Nails right. on in yellow. Yeah, it looks like he made his own it, like fan shirt or something. <laughs> right, and it, it 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 is an it is one in a long standing uh, 
it is one example in a long-standing tra- tradition of comic book artists trying very hard to be cool right. when they are painfully uncool. You don't know. Daryl Banks may have been cool as hell. Maybe he was having a new industrial at the time. That's cool. You I don't know, think so. You don't know that. Like, he I, made him wear the, the, a Nine Inch Nails shirt, Joe. Yeah, he may okay. have been cool. I, I remember like there's an issue of the New Warriors where Speedball and the New Warriors chase his mom to the Amazon because she's all hooked, um, caught up in some environmentalist wackiness. And he's wearing a tank top and it just says in like thin lined font, no design whatsoever. It just says Jesus Jones. <laughs> We've talked about it on the show. Now, Jesus Mark Jones Bagley. was never cool. So. <laughs> it's, no. uh, gosh, one anyway, wonders. This is great. Read, read Emerald Twilight. Read Ron Mars's run. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. It's a buy it for me. As I mentioned in our last review, my first review features an army of villains that are household names among Kong fans today, but in 1983, they weren't shit. I'm talking about Detective Comics 526 from DC. As I said, it's from 1983. It's written by Jerry Conway with art by Don Newton and Alfredo Alcala. Are you going to try and tell me that one of those household names is Captain Stingery? (laughs) Many of them, not all of them, (laughs) many of them. Here's your solicit courtesy of DC Comics Infinite.com. DC Universe Infinite.com. You know what it is. Who cares? Giant size issue commemorating Batman's 500th appearance in Detective Comics. Featuring the first appearance of Jason Todd as Robin. Kind of. Batman teams with Robin and Batgirl to take on 20 of his deadliest foes. Mm. Some of them are deadly. Yeah, including let's, let's put deadliest in quotes. The, come on, guys. <laughs> including the Joker, Catwoman, Killer Croc, Mr. Freeze, the Penguin, and more. Detective Comics 526 was one of the very first Batman comics I ever read. And scenes from this issue are permanently burned into my memory. So I knew that this had to be one of my milestone issues for this week's theme. In Crime Alley, Joker has gathered an army of Batman's worst and silliest enemies with a plan to murder the bat and take out their newest competition, Killer Croc. But Talia and Catwoman ain't having any of that, so they take off to warn Batman before it's too late. Meanwhile, Robin drops a young Jason Todd off at Wayne Manor so he and Batgirl can search for Jason's missing parents. I'm sure everything will work out just fine. I had forgotten just how different nearly everything about Batman's world was before Crisis on Infinite Earths, and especially the animated series, permanently redefined so many characters. The Joker is far from the terrifying maniac he's been portrayed as for so long. He is really just a goofy clown. He's Cesar Romero. I mean, like... He's Cesar Romero. No doubt. I mean, you know, I don't... I know we made fun of it, but, like, that series three Jokers that Jeff Johns did, the one that's the clown, yeah, it's, he's the guy that makes... He poisons fish. Yeah. He's the laughing fish Joker. He's goofy. Killer Croc isn't a monster so much as he is a deformed crime lord. The Riddler runs around in a spandex leotard. Jason Todd is a filthy, soulless ginger. (laughs) But it's so much fun seeing what all of these iconic characters used to be. And someone called Stingery is also here. Yeah, Captain Stingery. Captain, he's, sorry, he's Captain Stingery. He's not Mr. Stingery. He's Captain Stingery he didn't to spend, you, <laughs> He didn't spend eight years in Stingery school to be called, yeah. 
Writer Jerry Conway does an excellent job using the issue's extra pages to give page time to every member of this very large cast of characters, and he isn't shy about killing some of them off either. Remember, kids, it'd be another decade before anyone gave a shit about the Mad Hatter. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) A lot of the status quo is pretty silly. Jason's origin being almost exactly like Dick Grayson's, for example, right down to being part of a family of circus performers at the same circus. But it's a pretty typical tone for pre-crisis DC, so I'm not going to hold that against it. The art by Don Newton and Alfredo Alcala is absolutely fantastic. It's full of moody atmosphere and intense characters. Super close-up panels, like when they find the Todd's dead bodies, and Robin freaks out, and it does this set of like close-up panels tight on its face, and yeah. it's like really effective. Overall, Detective Comics 526 lives up to my memory of it, and it still holds up as a great celebration of a Batman milestone. I'm giving this a buy it. I loved it. Yeah, these issues are so wild for me because I, I don't have any frame of reference to this bat stuff outside of what we've reviewed on this show. I feel like I'm waking I'm waking from a weird Batman dream that I had, or like perhaps a Batman script written by AI. <laughs> it's just a little odd, you know. It's I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's like Batman with no cape working out, you know, in the Bat Cave and stuff, and like Black Spider is here. Although that guy kind of rules. Let me tell you. When I was five, when this book came out, I thought Black Spider was the coolest. Okay, Black Spider has a really cool outfit, and I'm surprised they haven't revived that character. And he had a wrist laser, but I don't remember ever seeing him again. He's he's legit cool looking. And I will say, like, all the stuff that led to everything we know about Batman today, it's here. Like, it's definitely here. The dark, oh, yeah, for sure. The dark themes are here and whatnot. Like, Croc is legit scary and stuff like that. I mean, you would see... Obviously, they would change over time. The Joker would become a different character. The Riddler would become a different character. But it's here. And this was fun to read. Now, (laughs) the whole thing with, like, Catwoman and Talia are both like, we love you, Batman. They're going to kill you, Batman. He's like, easy, babies. (laughs) Yeah, and that's something, and that was something that I guess I wasn't clear on from this. Something I wasn't clear on from this issue, and I hadn't read enough of the issues around it to know. But at this point in time, did Batman? Did Catwoman know she, the secret? She, she showed up have. in the Bat Cave. She had to have. Yeah, like tell like her she and Talia waltz into the Bat Cave, so they have to know. Oh, and I love also that they were in such a rush to you know spring into action that they just left the door. Yeah, they left the door open in Wayne Manor to get to the Bat Cave. Yeah. Jason's like, oh, oh, what's this? Yeah, so yes, they absolutely knew. This is a time where literally. Everybody knew who Batman was. I mean, I guess. (laughs) I mean, like, Vicky Vale is here. It's all the greatest hits. No, this is wild. It's fun, though, and it's really well done. I'm giving it a buy it. It, It's just, it's this different time. It's so, it never ceases to shock me every time I go and revisit this Batman, how weird it is compared to Batman today. Pre-crisis Batman, like the Dark Knight detective, right? The the Marshall Rogers, Jim Aparo, 80s Batman. That's how we do. Yeah. I I love it. That's just... That's He'll take his cape off and punch a punching bag in half. He don't care. <laughs> Want a good clean fight? Touch gloves. Batman, what eats crow, yells uncle, and tosses sponges? A loser. And I'm not a loser, Riddler. Oh. <laughs> Swinging back into the 90s, we jumped to Green Arrow, number 100. 
DC. This was 1995. It's written by Chuck Dixon with art by Jim Aparo, who we just talked about, and Rodolfo DiMaggio. Here is your solicit that I wrote. Ollie has been undercover tracking Hyrax and her crew of eco-terrorists that are looking to unleash a biological weapon called Mutajack 9-9 on the city of Metropolis via bomb. Meanwhile, Ollie's long-lost son, Connor, and his buddy, Eddie Fires, are tracking Ollie to prove his innocence with the help of the mysterious Russian spy, Camarouge. Ali ends up in a no-win situation with his arms stuck in the bomb, and not even Superman will be able to help him out of this one. Featuring a holofoil-enhanced cover, because it wouldn't be a 90s milestone without a good gimmick cover. I posted a picture of Camarouge in our Discord and asked if anyone could identify this lame character, Brian Domingos. Mad nerd stripes to you. Wow, that is impressive. I mean, this is... (laughs) This era, Brian is one of us, man. Like this I agree. is his era of I DC. did not remember who Camarouge was when I I didn't know I've never heard of her. <laughs> okay. I didn't know shit about Camarouge because I didn't read Green Arrow at the time. Next question, Joe Patrick. Hyrax. Okay. Do you know what a Hyrax actually is? I have no clue. Hyraxes are a well-furred, rotund animal with a short tail. <laughs> it's like Wh- a fat little gerbil looking thing. <laughs> no idea it looks sort of like a groundhog why would this woman choose her nickname pardon me her code name to be hyrax yeah i don't know man it it is (laughs) it is pretty dumb like green lantern 50 this milestone issue was a setup to introduce a new main character dixon's script is action-packed and split between ollie and connor's story jim aparo is on the main ollie story and i will say Definitely not Jim Aparo's strongest work. Now, he was 63 at the time, so maybe he's getting older. I don't know. DiMaggio's Connor's story looks fantastic, though, and his action is top-notch. There is a great page of Eddie Fires taking out four armed guards that every aspiring superhero comic artist needs to look at because it is sequential fighting at its best. I loved how Dixon surrounded both Eddie and Connor with badass international men and women of action, even when some of their code names were really stupid, each with their own flair and personality. Most, like Eddie, were just tough guys who were quick with their fists or handguns when they're pistol whipping people. <laughs> Green Arrow 100 <laughs> sets up a massive last page cliffhanger that doesn't end well for Ollie, and I would argue. Superman should probably be able to figure out this situation a little better than he does, but it's another great example of how DC was shaking up the status quo for their heroes in the 90s and taking real risks. By the way, taking Ollie out of the picture did not light the same fire that taking Hal out of the picture did. So. It did not. It did not. I'm giving but this a buy-it, I'm giving this a really huge love- buy-it. This was so much fun to revisit. Yeah. People really loved Connor Hawk right out of the gate, if yeah. I recall, because yeah. these these books were like super valuable. Well, I think Dixon did a really nice job of setting up Connor as this character, whereas Kyle was just sort of introduced. Now, for the sake of the story, they wanted Kyle to be like this nobody schlub that gets the ring, right? Right. Connor was very much set up and was oh, very yeah. cool. Like I loved now. 
there are some pinups in the back of this, I should mention. And the they Dan, are not good. <laughs> the Dan Norton pinup is so, look at my crotch. My crotch is in your face. <laughs> it is intense. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad 90s art. I don't even know who Dan Norton is, to be honest with oh, you. Oh, I remember Dan Norton. He was heavy. He was in with those image guys big time. He worked on Stormwatch and stuff. Like, he was right there. I also thought it was pretty funny that all of these pinups were just about things that happened in this one issue. Yeah. They're not about like celebrating Green Arrow. No, it, it almost looked like maybe these artists were going to draw this and they're like, nah, we're going to go with these other guys. Well, but the <laughs> second, the second pinup where it's Superman tearing the door off of the plane is by Rodolfo DiMaggio. Yeah. It's just like, so a, he did draw half the issue. I, I don't know, man. It's just like a different angle basically it's a it's a yeah he didn't draw that but scene now aparo yeah aparo drew that and i would argue that dimaggio's superman looks a lot better than aparo's long no he superman. does and now <laughs> i get it he's older it's 63 years old you know he's also dead aparo, so we're not gonna offend jim aparo you know? yeah yeah no but also uh, i i in particular thought that the inking of jim aparo's sections by jerry fernandez was not great. So I don't know how much of the art it goes to Aparo. I think you're being sweet. How much of the blame goes to Aparo? I think you're being very sweet here. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. Because I, I legitimately think that this inking does not look good on It doesn't. On it doesn't. But there's, but I'm talking, it, but like there are the Superman inking, poses that are bizarre. That's right. That's that picture of Superman in the doorway. Right. Like the inking didn't cause that. Not, like, no, the inking didn't <laughs> give him Jim the drew it that way. giant ape hands that he appears to have. Yeah, I don't know. He's got, like, yeah, he's got these banana hands. I, I don't know. Uh, I did. I have not read a ton of this uh, run of Green Arrow, just spots here and there. But every time I read it, I do love it. I love Connor Hawk. I love, love Rodolfo DiMaggio. He's great. I wish that guy was still around. Yeah, he's great. I'm very glad he got over drawing Connor with the mask that you can see his eyeballs through. Yeah. Just give him the white eyes, man. It looks silly. Just do it, looks it. Silly. it looks silly. But this was a ton of fun. And Dixon, like you said, he he will rattle off 10 characters that DC will trot out in the background of any sort of like assassin or martial arts story till the end of time, lady Vic, the body double. Oh yeah. The fatal, all of the weird ass characters that fought Nightwing. Like these are people that are nobodies, but every single one of them is also like, the baddest mother that oh, yeah. in like the DC Hyrax, universe. Camo Rouge. Like, <laughs> really? They're and, that? And it's just, okay. yeah, it's, and I love it. I love that. I love that about his work. This is a bite. Uh, fun fact about this era, this particular era of DC. What year did you say this was from? 1995. Five. Okay. So right around this time, this is when all of those big books or many big books were hitting issue 100. Flash 100, Green Arrow 100, Superman 100, Wonder Woman 100. Yeah. And they all had that, they all had the same cover treatment where it was just that silhouette. Yeah. Of the character with the big foil letters. But and was, I love It was that like design. the weird rainbow holofoil though. Like, it's holofoil, yeah. yeah. And I love that cover design. I love it so much. But uh, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, look those up. They're fun. Don't bother reading Superman 100 because Conduit is a stupid villain. (laughs) I'm not sure why we swung into the 90s when Green Arrow doesn't really swing, (laughs) but we are going to swing back to the 80s 
for Amazing Spider-Man 300 from Marvel Comics 1988. That character actually does swing. We all know it. Thank you. It's written by David Michelini. Michelini, sorry. With art by Todd McFarlane. Here is your solicit courtesy of Marvel.com. The first full appearance of Venom. Witness the return of Eddie Brock and the red and blue Spider-Man. Spoilers. Are Eddie and the symbiote still holding an irrational grudge against the wall crawler? Yes. This is a Venom Spider-Man Smackdown you won't want to miss. Now, I love this era of Spider-Man. But I totally missed this issue as a kid because I was more of a spectacular and web of Spidey-Man. I didn't buy Amazing on the regular back then. So imagine my disappointment when Todd McFarlane comes on the book and this awesome new villain shows up out of nowhere and I wasn't around for it. (sighs) Not bitter about it or anything. (laughs) Writer David Michelinie brings several seemingly forgotten plot threads together for the creation of Venom, including disgraced crime reporter Eddie Brock and the alien symbiote thought destroyed years earlier in the pages of Web of Spider-Man number one. Real quick, I would say crime reporter slash power lifter. <laughs> crime reporter slash power lifter, Eddie Brock. ripped. <laughs> Prior to his introduction in the last issue, brief, by the way, brief introduction, that's why this is the first full appearance, Venom made several stealth appearances as an unseen figure toying with Peter Parker. So they would, it would be just a random issue of whatever, Web of Spider-Man, and he'd be on a subway platform. And all of a sudden... No spider sense going off. Somebody shoves him onto the subway platform in front of the train. And he's like, what the hell? And then he was crawling on a building and a hand reached out and yanked him off the building. No, again, no spider sense. And they ultimately revealed it was Venom. Just like testing his ability to cloak himself from uh, Pete's spider sense. And I love that. Now he is here in all of his grinning glory and he is... Kind of silly. He's kind of silly looking. He's <laughs> <It's> pretty silly. <laughs> it is easy to forget that the fangs and the drool and the tongue, they all came from Eric Larson yeah. sometime later. Yeah. Years later. I'm trying to remember if it was in the three, like McFarlane's last issue is 328, but Larson did some fill-ins. So I think it was somewhere prior to 328. So in the next two years is when we get the tongue and the, and the teeth. There is a lot going on in this issue in a relatively short amount of time. Oh, yeah. Somehow, Peter and Mary Jane managed to find a new home, pack, and move in the span of what seems like a single day. But somehow, they also find time to spend an evening with Aunt May and her boarding house tenants and get freaky not once, but twice. Yeah, this comic was so horny. Spidey comics <laughs> in the 80s had crazy. a tendency. Yeah. Spidey comics in the 80s had a tendency to get super horny, especially after Pete and MJ got married. Oh, yeah. Nobody wanted to have sex with, uh, with MJ more than Todd McFarlane. <laughs> oh, but they did, no it in, they, did it in, they did it in other books, too. I'm not they, saying like, they didn't, but Todd McFarlane, like, will not miss a chance to put her in lingerie, to have oh, her take her sure, top off, for sure. to have her yep. pull, hiking up her skirt, like, 100%. Well, I don't know about that last one, but yeah. No, she does. In this issue, when she's wearing the fishnets and the black skirt, she, like, hikes it up a little bit. She's like, there we go. Like, <laughs> like show off her thighs. Oh, boy. <laughs> Michelini also manages to squeeze in a bunch of very silly jokes and background references, which is something that I didn't remember being a characteristic of this run. Like during the scene where all the friends come to move Pete and MJ, 
one guy with a terrible haircut drawn by McFarlane makes fun of Harry Osborne's hair, which I thought was fun. But then there's also a joke about Alfred E. Newman, where there's a guy that looks like Alfred E. Newman, and he says that he's mad that he's missing the Nets game. And it's like, yeah, I get it, mad. But why? <laughs> what, what are these doing in here? Todd McFarlane, look. He should be on a list for the way he draw he dresses women in this comic book. <laughs> the, the, the guy's flashy. You got to give him that pervert. <laughs> the guy's flashy. You got to give him that. He seems to get a pass where Liefeld doesn't, but his grasp of basic tenets of art, like anatomy are pretty dodgy, Yeah, but he's also a whole lot better at breaking those rules than Liefeld is when McFarlane just does what McFarlane does and draws something that in reality is kind of nonsense. It still looks cool, but when McFarlane does it, eh, not so much. I'll, I'll give you that. His art explodes with personality. You just have to get over his extreme distaste for drawing background scenery. There are a number of shots where Spider-Man is swinging over New York, and it is obviously a photograph that has been filtered to oblivion. Yeah, like I didn't, I totally forgot that McFarlane did all this Fumetti bullshit where like, yeah. Just full-on pictures of New York behind him. It's so weird. Uh, he also has a complete lack of understanding of normal human fashion. Yeah. One does not typically wear a ball gown to Sunday dinner with one's husband's Aunt Mary Jane. <laughs> right. uh, that's, uh, like, literally, she looks like she's at a cotillion. And Flash Thompson is wearing a Gumby t-shirt tucked into his high-waisted beltless jeans. <sighs> Let's not forget that Candy, uh, Randy, and Bambi. Candy, Randy, and Bambi. Pete's yeah. neighbors are all wearing, like, Candy's wearing a half shirt bustier tube uh, because top. I, I believe that they are always depicted as wearing something similar to Jazzercise workout gear. Absolutely. You know, leg warmers yeah. and shit. Good God. It, yeah, it's like flash dance crap. And yeah, and they're, and they're here too. Amazing Spider-Man 300 doesn't really hold up as well as I thought it would, but it is a ton of fun and it pays off long simmering subplots to establish a major new addition to Spider-Man's rogues gallery. I'm giving this a buy it. Like it's a blast. This is still it's great. Yeah. You can't fight it. This is still great. It, it's fun to go back and look at how weird Todd McFarlane was because like in our heads, he's this legend that changed the way we think about Spider-Man that changed the way Spider-Man's webs were drawn you know, the, yeah. the way Spider-Man moved and stuff. And it's true. The big eyes and the legs above his head when he Absolutely. sleeps, like all of that. It's all flash. It's just all pure flash. There's like no attention to the rules, if you will. Like a guy like Jim Aparo, who we just talked about, like had some issues in that last, you know, green arrow issue. Sure. But even at 63, Jim Aparo has a firm grasp on the rules of sequential storytelling and point right. of view and stuff. Todd is just a lot more concerned in drawing something flashy or drawing those boobs real big or drawing the muscles on Eddie Brock freakishly huge. You know, like that's what he's here to do. And it worked. Yeah. Back in the yeah. day, it totally worked. I forgot how silly his venom was. It really is goofy. It's, it's goofy. Straight you up. Know, I, I, Venom is I not scary to, here. He's just a jerk. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a way to word this in, in my review, but it's almost like they're going for more of a sense of creeping dread, right? He's like, I mean, he's I, a, he's a creepy presence. He's a set of white teeth in the dark. He's not a dangerous looking monster. No, he's just, he's yeah. like a stalker. It's a different, 
He's like Eddie Brock, it's the not, stalker. It's not what we would, yeah. It's not what we would come to associate with. Him. Yeah, he's definitely not a monster. Like I don't find him a lot scarier than the scorpion at this time, basically. Right. You know. Right. But exactly. this is a lot of fun, and it is important if you want to know about Venom, where it came from, and stuff, and you want to see a young Todd McFarlane before he really came into his Spider-Man art, which is still has its problems when we go back and look at it. Uh, look, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, here to, I'm here to tell you, McFarlane might have gotten better at what Mark Farland does, but he didn't really improve much in the, the fundamentals no. department. And there's panels in this that are just straight bad. I'm looking at a panel of, of Venom swinging around right now where it's like his arm is clear up behind him. His head is not in the right position on his shoulders. His other arm <laughs> yeah. is interrupting his head. It's just like, no. Todd, don't <laughs> just stick uh, your splash pages. I'm giving this a buy it because it's just it's it's late 80s Spidey fun. It's very proto Venom and it's important. It really is. This is important stuff. It's a buy. It. Yeah. I mean, I loved it. It's just goofy as hell. Yeah, it really is. I want to eat your brain. Spider sense tingling. Joe Patrick, we can't just celebrate all these milestone issues. And so now. We're going to talk about The Punisher, Volume 2, number 100, from Marvel. This was 1995. Is the thing. This Uh. is also written by Chuck Dixon and Richard Ashford, who did the backup. This is a cover by Michael Golden, who did both covers. Michael Golden is a legend. Michael Golden is a very important comic book artist. Neither of these covers are good. At all. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, what do you mean? What's the other cover you're talking about? There, the first cover is the full color one, the direct edition one, right? That has like the Punisher with a weird kind of black and white relief. The second cover was a foil cover that was supposed to be the Punisher pointing a gun at a mirror at himself, but it's so washed out in the foil, you can barely see what it is. It's terrible. Oh, I guess I only, I, I only saw the one where it's him with the like skeleton crawling, uh, reaching around from behind. Right, that's the direct edition one. That's not the foil one. I love that cover. I think this cover is really great. I think it's weird. This had... Well, yeah, it's weird. Anyway. This is art by Rod Wiggum with no less than seven inkers, I might add. <laughs> it's, it's not great when you have to <laughs> no. m- get ahead of making fun of your own inability to right. provide consistent art. And backup, the backup story art is by John Herbert. Neither of these gentlemen are anyone that I've ever heard of, by the way. I was, I've I wanted, heard of, I've heard of Rod Wiggum, but he was again, like he's no, he's no McFarland. No. He wouldn't really. And yeah, I want to, I want to set the lineup. I want to set the stage by like, I have never read this era of Punisher. I never read no. any of these. So this is completely unknown for me. I went, Oh, oh Chuck, I was so lost. I have no idea what was going on. Oh in this yeah. Comic. I, I went, Oh, I'm Chuck totally Dixon lost. wrote it. Okay. Maybe I will like this. Here is your solicit. I wrote this. Microchip has taken Frank prisoner in a recreation of his old house while he tries to help him come to grips with the monster that he's become. In the meantime, Micro sends his new Punisher, Carlos Cruz, <laughs> to kill Rosalie Carbone before she can unite two of the most powerful NYC mob families. Who is Carlos Cruz, you might ask? Well, let me read you his entire history, courtesy of Marvel <laughs> fandom. After falling out with Frank Castle, Microchip wanted to continue the Punisher's war on crime regardless. He located, recruited former soldier and police officer Carlos C.C. Cruz. Cruz was later killed by Stone Cold. The end. <laughs> there you go. Stone Cold, Stone Cold Steve Austin? Or? No, a guy named Stone Cold, who is another 
one of those like this is straight up Chuck Dixon making his like bad guys you've never heard of. Oh, he's doing he, it at Marvel. He's yeah, doing yeah. it at Got Marvel. You. But these characters are literally alive for two or three issues before they get killed. That well, yeah, includes yeah, Stone Cold. Yeah, it's the Punisher. Cruz is killed in the pages of Punisher War Journal number 41, which came out the same year as this book. Think about that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> this is the big one, Joe. The Punisher finally gets an issue 100, and in true mighty Marvel fashion, he spends it locked in a replica of his old house as Microchip's prisoner. Did I mention that Frank is barely in this issue? But don't fret, reader. There's a solo microchip backup story, too, featuring computer hackers that make computers explode and kill people. This is the 90s, mind you. Yeah, hack all right? the planet. That's, a, that's what people, that's all people knew about. In the what year 2023, I cannot make a virus that will make your computer explode and kill you. Well, you're not a hacker, are you? I suppose. Normally, a 100th issue would be a big deal for a character, but the creative team decided to focus on Microchip and his replacement Punisher, Carlos Cruz, who wears a 90s extreme version of the Punisher suit complete with spikes and a skull mask. Cruz has one job, kill Rosalie Carbone, but he manages to screw that up repeatedly while running through page after page of highly detailed Terrible art with serious point of view issues and some truly terrible action posing. There's no spectacle. There's no big character reveal and barely any of the actual Punisher that readers are paying for. Two terrible covers, a story that's mindless violence without actual violence. There's no blood whatsoever. It's just people getting shot and going, oh, I, I mean, it's, it's got to be approved by the comics code. I so suppose. And a backup featuring everyone's favorite, Microchip, the Punisher's short-lived tech partner. Joe, I have to ask, how did this get friggin' made? This is a leave it. This is your Punisher 100 with an, with an extra, it, it cost more. It was extra sized. And Marvel's like, do it, Chuck Dixon. <laughs> we trust you so much that in three issues, everything that you have running is done. We get rid of all this for the Punisher suicide run storyline. Suicide like, run where Frank dies. Yeah. They're like, oh, that's gone. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, this, it's not good. It's, it's, it's not good. I find the art in the backup story like actively upsetting. Yeah. yeah. The artist pays more attention to microchips buddies acne than most other things in the comic. Like. I don't need to see it. I don't need to see that, man. I don't need to know. I don't need to count all the pimples on this geek. <laughs> I will say, uh, and I'm trying to see if I can figure out, um, I want to give some credit where it's due, but I don't know if they show. Oh, they do. Page 32. Who inked page 32? Elman Brown. Your boy, Elman Brown. You know. Everybody. You're right. Everybody's favorite Elman Brown. Elman Brown. Brown. <laughs> the art is not good. The art is not good. They have, how many did you say? 16, 10, 11? Seven inkers. Seven inkers. Seven inkers. Only on the main story. There's one inker on the back story. Those seven are all on the main story, Joe. No, no, no. I know. (laughs) And like it could, it might as well, when you have seven inkers, it might as well be a hundred inkers. It doesn't matter. But I will say, Elman Brown, who inked page 32, there is a scene where Micro shows Frank, a video camera uh, footage of 
Maria painting their house, right? Right. And Frank just breaks down, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And those last two panels of Frank on the ground, like going into fetal position, they are truly incredible. They're sure. really wonderful drawings. Sure. And I had to scour this issue to find anything to recommend, anything worthwhile. The rest of it is just garbage. It's it's not great. It's a leave it. Yeah, it's it's garbage. It's really this bad. this this mob woman that Cruz busts in on, and apparently she's trying to like lay sexy over over this futon or whatever yeah. while there's this guy on the ground. If I walked in and I saw that woman looking like that, I would be like, "Oh, you probably are the one I'm here to kill." Oh yeah, it's just it's not. It's bad. He this can't, whole thing is bad. He cannot draw attractive women. Like, both the women, and and that's not Carbone. That's the other woman. I don't even know who she is. Doesn't matter. Not important. Yeah, no. But she uh, is it, a dog-faced freak <laughs> with this, like, sexy yeah, body, it, but oh, my and, God. <laughs> like, it, there was a point where, like, I read it. Yeah, like, sure, I read it. Could I identify any of the characters at any given time in this no. comic other than the no. two Punishers and Microchip? No. Because it's all just a sea of nonsense. This is a leave it. It's terrible. Yeah, it really- There's a reason why I wasn't reading Punisher around this time, because it, it wasn't good. This is a shockingly bad time for the Punisher. <laughs> it was, man. It really and, was. And, and they did what they always do, which was, it sells, we need more of it. Yeah. Don't make the thing that's out there better, just make more of it. Yep. And we ended up with so many friggin' Punisher comics- and so many relaunches, and the vast majority of them are awful. Enough of those nobodies. Let's talk about some names you'd recognize. My next review is Avengers 300 from Marvel. It was 1989. It's written by Walt Simonson and Ralph Macchio. Not that one. With art by John Buscema, Tom Palmer, and Walt Simonson. Here is your solicit. I believe this was also courtesy of Marvel.com. Reed and Sue Richards attack the orphan maker and nanny for the safe return of their son, Franklin. Hang watches the battle from the surface of the time bubble. Okay. And debates his involvement. After Franklin is secured in the arms of his parents, the Fantastic Four agree to help Cap reform the Avengers team. Now, if you were thinking to yourself, man, it's kind of weird that a blurb describing an Avengers comic only mentions anything related to the Avengers in literally the last five words. That concern is not unfounded. (laughs) I have been dying to read this comic for so long. The cover boasting the introduction of a strange new team of Avengers has always fascinated me. I should have let it remain a tantalizing mystery. (laughs) We are smack in the middle of an Inferno tie-in and a guest appearance of Reed and Sue Richards and a completely random attack by, of all villains, Nanny and the Orphan Maker. (laughs) The Avengers recently disbanded for, I don't know, reasons, I guess. I have no idea. Leaving Steve, the Captain Rogers, to help the Richards family rescue their son as demons ravage New York and, according to Kang, the entirety of time and space? If the demons had won Inferno, all of the multiverse would have been screwed? I certainly don't remember that being... (laughs) uh, That is... Okay. Well, I'll get I don't into remember it. it being that high stakes. I'll get into it when I talk about it, but like I picked this up solely because it was an Inferno crossing and I was so down with Inferno. And th- that was not happening 
literally anywhere else. It was not. Like they a were thing. opening portal. They were opening portals above the World Trade Center and stuff. Sure, but New York was in. I agree. New York was in but serious like, trouble. But that's it. In fact, like, like Detroit was fine. Philadelphia was fine. Right. <laughs> it, 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 it is like they were bending over backwards to make this comic matter to something like the Avengers. Right. King, like Kang is out there going, oh, no, if I don't help the Avengers, I will cease to exist. Yeah. Because the time. <laughs> Shut up. That is so stupid. Also, they don't ever explain why Steve Rogers is not Captain America. You got to look that up for your own. Yeah, he's uh, wearing the black outfit. I thought it was U.S. agent at first. He's the like, captain. Oh, no. This is at, That's full uh, on Steve. Right now, yeah, John Walker is running around as Captain America yeah. in the pages of Captain America. Oh, uh, you know, it's okay, though. You know, all this stuff's going on. Time and space is in imminent danger, but Kang sends his growing doll to help out on the sly. It's Everything's going to be fine. Also, Thor and Gilgamesh are there. You know, <laughs> all the hits. Yeah. Walt Simonson has to, you know what? If you took a drink every time somebody in this comic says, oh, Gilgamesh, I, you would think I would have heard of you. Oh, you yeah. would probably pass out before Man. you were done. And that cow helmet. God, that's good I stuff. love it. <laughs> it's literally it a is dumb. I with love horns it. and a cow face on it. <laughs> yeah, it is a cow face, yeah. Walt Simonson has to work so hard to make this assortment of characters and situations make sense and tie it to the legacy of Earth's Mightiest Heroes, that the whole thing is a jumbled mess. Even the art by Marvel legends John Buscema and Tom Palmer isn't really up to their usual high standards. It's looking really rushed in places, and they're getting absolutely no help from colorists Beckton and Siri. They don't even get first names. <laughs> Sorry, guys. As I mentioned, it kind of feels like the crossover was forced on this title and this creative team, and they had to adjust it on the fly, but who knows? I, I have no idea. There's a backup story from Ralph Macchio with Simonson on art retelling the events of Avengers number one from Loki's perspective. It's okay. It's fun. It's unmemorable, though. But with a nonsensical story and rough art, sadly, the bizarre mystery of Avengers 300 was best left unsolved. I'm giving this a leave it. So say what you will about the last Punisher comic that we just absolutely trounced. At least that Punisher comic made sense like i could put together yeah. what was happening there was a story there this comic book is just a mess it is a garbled all over the place yeah it is a garbled mess and like if i was an avengers fan which i was not at this time but if i were an avengers fan and i picked this up expecting an avengers story not just any avengers story a milestone avengers story this is yeah. a big one. Oh shit Gilgamesh is on the cover with his cow helmet. I got to see what's going on. It's going to be crazy. I would have been so mad. <laughs> this is garbage, Joe. This is so bad. And it's garbage by very famous, celebrated people. So I can only assume, like you said, this was just thrust upon them. Do an Inferno tie-in. Uh, we don't even care how you do it. Just do it. And they're like, all right, fine. But we don't want to mess with anything that's going on in the X-Men or you know, Spider-Man, any major Inferno tie-in. So I don't know, let's do something with Kang. It's happening all over the place. It's yeah. happening in time and space, whatever. Who cares? That's what the Avengers deal with. You know, this sucked. It's a leave it. This just sucked. Yeah, it's bad. It's, <laughs> it's not good. It's so bad. Marvel so far, you know, they're zero for two. <laughs> Let's get back to the good stuff, Joe Patrick. Let's get back to something we can both agree with. The old knucklehead, 
and his 100th mm. issue, Wolverine, Volume 2, Number 100. This is from Marvel, 1996. It is written by Larry Hama with art by Adam Kubert. Here is your solicit. Wolverine, Apocalypse Horseman of Death? Question mark? He may regain his adamantium, but will Logan lose his mind? And what does the fruition of Genesis plan mean for the Dark Riders? And more importantly, Cyber! <laughs> the return yeah, of cyber. Feral Wolverine. Okay, I'll get, like, spoiler, Cyber's way dead already in this issue, so I don't know, yeah, what, they, I don't know where we're like worried har- about him. Like, that's where the adamantium comes they from. They harvested off his of dead yeah, body. He is yeah. dead. The 90s were a tough time for Wolvie. Just three years previous, Magneto had torn out his adamantium in the pages of X-Men, Volume 2, Number 25. And in that time, the old knucklehead had been running around with bone claws. But this was the big issue that would see Wolvie return to his unbreakable skeleton badass self. But as usual... The process does not go well, to say the least. And we end up with some pretty embarrassing wolvy stuff where he's devolved as a dog man in a do-rag in some stories that I would call less than great after this. This issue, though, has got it all. We don't have to worry about that. Yeah. We don't have to worry about what comes after. Don't we're worry. just talking about that. We're just celebrating right now. This issue, it's got it all. Kubert's art is completely insane, with Genesis constantly flexing, and that dude has got muscles stacked on top of his muscles. He has, like, a 32-pack <laughs> in his stomach. Yeah. It's and, and Genesis is Cable's kid, right? Tyler, yes. Tyler, Gen- yeah. This is Tyler we're talking about. Hamas scripts out more than half this issue, literally more than half this issue is Wolverine squirming in pain in a Weapon X-looking tank as Genesis narrates everything while they pump the liquid yeah, metal yeah. back into him. Of course, he busts out and gets very bloody revenge on Genesis and his Dark Riders and saves his buddy Cannonball. The idea of Wolvie's inner beast unleashed was just beginning here. And I will say, this first panel where we see him and he's just like, pure feral rage and he's got long hair and he's like his claws are still bone claws but messed up and there's still adamantium coming out of him it looks kick ass with that said i don't have much to say about where the story goes after this issue but no wolfie 100 was an amazing milestone issue that i remember burning through back in the day it still completely holds up i'm giving this a massive buy it this is just a kick-ass Wolverine story. 100%. I love this comic. I love it so much. Yeah. I, and you know, last week when we were coming up with our picks, right, and we were kind of struggling for each of us to find two Marvels and two DCs, and I was like, oh, Wolverine 100. Hollow foil cover, dog nose. They shoved the edit. They tried to shove the edit in. And I was so excited to read it after I suggested it that I read it like that night. It holds up, man. It's so much fun. Uh, the way this guy Hurricane goes out, he's one of the Dark Riders. Awesome. Just awesome. <laughs> Everything explodes and the adamantium like gets purged from Wolverine's body yeah. and out of the tank. And all of it goes into Hurricane like a storm of icicles. Yeah, he's just like cut to ribbons and that dude like and there is a close-up two-page spread of that dude and he is dead oh big time yeah like a thousand gleaming adamantium knives protruding from the back of his body oh it's so great kubert is 
Kubert is out of control in this yeah, issue. Out like, of control. Yeah, it's looks, so good. He looks, he's on meth while he's drawing this. Yeah. It's nuts. I mean, honestly, and the story, the story is whatever, right? It's just, it's Larry Hama doing whatever. He's trying to resurrect Apocalypse. He's trying to make Wolverine and a horseman. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's trying to turn Wolverine into a dark rider or, or uh, uh, into the uh, horseman of death or whatever. It's all blah, 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 stock, you know, X-Men villain nonsense. But the execution of it where it just gets more and more buck wild as the book progresses <laughs> and things go wrong and Cannonball messes up the equipment and <laughs> oh, it's so good. Well, did, like and Larry then, Hama did this thing that, and I think it's the reason we all love Wolverine is because Larry Hama understood like, look, you can take a guy like the Hulk and have him beat up really tough people. And that's how we understand the Hulk is super tough. We get it because he, yeah. he's super strong. You know what, what makes Wolverine tough he can take just about anything you throw at him, you know, and put him in this tank, pump hot metal into him and he'll scream and shake and I'm like, God, that dude is just, t-. it's like watching Rocky get beat up. That's how you know Rocky's a badass because Rocky can take a beating, you know, and then shell it out afterwards. That's why we love yeah. it. Oh yeah. And I've got to admit, you know, we make fun of Dogface Wolverine because it is dumb, but this scene after he gets out of the tank and he's all devolved and we haven't seen him yet. And he's all, we can tell something's wrong with him. And cannonball is like, remember who you were. Remember who you were. I need you help us Wolverine. And he starts taking out the dark riders. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's a, a great re- scene. The reveal is fantastic. Cause like we'd never seen this yet. And we just went in that one panel, Adam Cooper does a thing where I remember like as a kid, like turning that page and going, Oh shit. (laughs) Yeah. These guys are in trouble. (laughs) Right. And like Wolverine, Wolverine hangs one of them. uh, This Hellspont look, the guy looks like Hellspont from the wild. Definitely. Yeah. He hangs this guy with the spine of his own teammate. Yeah. It's like, how did this get approved by the comics code? It's so good. It's a buy it for me. I love this comic. I, I think it's great. It is very silly what what follows Dogface Wolverine. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and like, Tyler and, and Genesis and the Tyler resurrection and of Apocalypse. He runs around with he oh. runs around with Electra for like ten issues. It's well, he's man. got this girl Life Force working for him here that like works in a thong. <laughs> like that's her workplace work. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's so much fun though. So much fun. Trust me. Empty your pockets into the tray, sir, or we'll have to. Your pockets, sir? Lady, the problem isn't in my pants. Okay, now you've seen them. We're good. Ladies and gentlemen, I owe Matt Bomb an apology for making him read half of Action Comics 600. Oh, I read the whole thing. <laughs> oh, you, no. You read half of it before you switched, pal. No, I no, read no. the whole I read damn the, thing. I read the whole thing, too. Ugh. But I do owe Matt an apology for making him read Action Comics 600 when I switched my pick to Action Comics 700 <laughs> from DC. The year was 1994. Look, Action Comics 600, it's fine. It's goofy. Mm. It's unmemorable. Mm. It's it's way too much about DC's gods, and we already talked about how much yeah. that sucks. And I was just like, oh, oh, I could not care less. That's why, <laughs> that's why I switched. That's why I switched. This one's written by Roger Stern with art by Jackson Butch Geis. He's still credited as Jackson back then, which is fine. Dennis Rodier, or it's got one in, so maybe it's Denny Rodier. I don't know. Sounds French to me. Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. Here is your solicit courtesy of DC Universe Infinite.com. Fall of 
Fall of Metropolis Part 1. Can Superman, Supergirl, and Superboy save Metropolis? Meanwhile, wedding bells can be heard in Smallville as Pete Ross marries Lana Lang. Fans of our long-delayed Death and Return of Superman retrospective series may remember me talking about the endgame of the bizarre saga of Lex Luthor becoming his own Australian clone son. (laughs) Well, the chickens have come home to roost, y'all, in a big way. Lex's body is degrading due to an incurable disease running rampant through Metropolis's clone population. There's more of them than you'd think. His crimes are finally being revealed for the entire world to see, and it's looking like he will spend his final days in prison. Well, if Lex can't have Metropolis, nobody can. Superman, Supergirl, and Superboy race to find Luthor and disarm the bombs scattered throughout the city. And while Luthor is finally brought to justice, our heroes didn't count on the madness of Lex's chief flunky, who triggers one last round of destruction. Powerless to stop what's been set in motion, the world watches as the unthinkable happens. Metropolis falls. Well, most of it. Uh. Okay, some of it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the Daily Planet gets blown up. A That's few bad. blocks. A few blocks. <laughs> they say downtown. Downtown. If all of downtown Omaha got blown I don't up, know. that would be bad. But it didn't even look like all of downtown got it. It looked like a few blocks yeah, I mean, you know. It, it's a lot. Uh, this That was something, though, that I did not remember from my youth, is that Superman convinces Lex to stand down and not trigger the final Doomsday weapon. And it's Happerson, his sidekick that's like i won't let you give up sir and triggers the suicide button <laughs> and so lex is ultimately like not the tr- i mean he's still the bad guy but he still came up with it it was still his plan i know i know I but mean, come he, on but he's like okay i won't detonate all the bombs i planted throughout it's like city. if you told everybody to storm the capital and they did and you were like it's not my fault they did it <laughs> right <laughs> i was kidding you guys i turned i it turned out uh, you know i went on tv that morning and said i changed my mind don't do it but it's too late you were already down there this is a huge payoff for a ton of seeds planted going back more than five years and it is impressive how the superman creative office managed to pull it off Roger Stern does get the credit for taking the ball into the end zone, or at least starting it. This is part one, not the end of Fall of Metropolis, as I remembered. But he also gets to marry off two of Clark Kent's oldest friends, Pete Ross and Lana Lang. The lead story gets a little bogged down by the sheer weight of the plot threads it's juggling, especially the one where the publisher of Newstime is secretly DC's devil, Lord Satanus who ends up having way more involvement in the issue's resolution than he deserves. Like, he barely in it until they need a deus ex machina. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he's there. The wedding side story is a lovely trip down memory lane made more special by the presence of Superman family legends, Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, but it feels 100% disconnected from what's going on in the rest of the issue. The art by Geis and Rodier is a whole lot better than it was in the death and funeral issues that we reviewed a few months ago. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Geist manages to deliver some really lovely character portraits and emotional moments, but there are also some pretty dodgy action poses and layouts, much like Apero. Like, why is Superboy and Spread Eagle catching this missile? I don't understand what's happening. Supermans and Supergirl with the headsets on? I hate it. God, I hate it. I mean, I understand, (laughs) you know, this was before they came up with the idea of, you know, John Jones linking them by telepathy and they don't have earbuds. It's the 90s. The technology wasn't there, but it is goofy. 
Action Comics 700 continues the peak 90s Superman saga, and while I love it in all of its messy glory, I definitely can't strongly recommend it to newbies as an anniversary celebration. This is a skimmit. It's kind of the definition of a skimmit. You know, give it a look-see. If you like where it's going, this is part one. Great, great place to jump in. They explain everything you need to know, but it's a lot. It's a lot. They explain everything you need to know. I agree, but... It's too much. It's not a lot, Joe. It's too much. No, I agree. It's too much. And it was too much for me. Maybe I need to disconnect myself from the fact that I read 600 right before I read 700. But by the time I was done with these two comics, I was almost done with Superman. I was like, okay, we're giving Superman a break for at least three months because this is too much. Ah, I hated it. (laughs) You big baby. I hated this. Again, artists that I like, creators that I, I legit like, and I know they were working on something. And I know this paid off a lot of stuff. It just paid off a lot of stuff that I have no connection to and I feel nothing for. I'm totally fair. And I, I, want, I understand that when I go back to this era of Superman, I just find it exhausting. It's like they made everything so complex and you didn't need to. There was just no reason for a lot of this to even be happening. And it's like they got stuck in their own plot. It's like they got too stuck in their own plot and they couldn't figure out ways out of it without introducing a devil <laughs> secretly like a publisher. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the blessing and the curse of the triangle era of yes. Superman Yes, is that every subplot contributed to the patchwork mosaic. Yes. That was the Superman uh, franchise at the right. time. And, and, and working in those constraints, I'm going to give this a skim it. Because they were working in that. I'm not saying it's complete failure. It's just not something that I enjoy. And I don't like, there's like, a, I don't like, like going do, back to this. It's too exhausting for me. They give a real brief call out to everybody's favorite mutants, the Underworlders. Ugh, but no, I hate they, the ha- they show restraint by not actually showing any. <laughs> yeah, otherwise it would have been a leave it. That would have been the thing that knocked me into a leave it right yeah, there. Cla- like Closter doesn't show up, you know. <laughs> Before the Cosmic Long Box lets us return to our proper timeline, we need to pick one of these comics to enter the THN Permanent Collection, and which one of these issues was the best representative of a milestone issue? I like it, and my, my answer counts for both, no question. It's Wolverine 100, without a doubt. <laughs> I mean, there's no that's how you do a milestone. This is, like, I love that Green Lantern 50, I love it. It's, it's great, because like what it was setting up Right for what's going to happen to Hal after this and what's coming with Kyle and whatnot. But Wolverine 100 is just like everything that you love about Wolverine boiled down into a perfect little rock that you can smoke and just like get your yeah, Wolverine here and go, like, damn, it's tough. <laughs> it's know? distilled down to its purest It essence. really is. Even with all the yeah. bullshit, even with the Genesis and Apocalypse bullshit, it still holds up and it's great. No, I agree. Uh, my pr- my pick. See, I am really torn. My favorite example of a milestone issue from our selections is Detective Five Twenty Six because I think it is the one really? that. Just because I think it's the one that was the closest to an actual celebration of the history of the character. Yeah, like, I guess it was this journey through like this varied rogues gallery, this cast of supporting characters. I'm not saying it's the best of the bunch. I'm saying as a as a milestone, I think that one was a really great celebration of the history of Batman. Ah, 
shit. You know what? No. Really? Yeah, that this is what I'm like, is it? Because like it's a it, fun little celebration, sure, but like that's all it is. Nothing really big happens to the character. There's no big like I mean Jason Todd shows up and and, and they're they're gonna make him Rama, but I guess later, but it doesn't happen here. Okay, okay. <clears throat> okay, fine. It's Wolverine 100 for both. Yeah. I, <laughs> Come on. <laughs> this is where. Look, I, I thought about this for the entire episode. I. It's hard to. It's hard for me to choose between this and Green Lantern, because that Green Lantern book was so important to not only. It was. Not only just one character, but the entire Green Lantern mythos until today. Absolutely. And if you want to even like take it down to cover gimmicks. That Green Lantern, the glow-in-the-dark Green Lantern cover is so rad. It's it is very rad. Awesome. And I love the Wolverine 100 foil cover. That kicks ass, too. With the adamantium, you know, coming out. Awesome. But that GL one, whew, that's hot. <laughs> there's, a, there's another version of that Wolverine cover they put out, too. One where it's just, like, the metal around him is just, you know, silver foil. Right. And there's another one where all of Wolverine in the middle is hologram. Yeah, I think that was like the second or third printing or something like that. I don't know. I don't don't know. know. But uh, anyway, Wolverine 100 was the book I had the most fun reading. So it's got to be that one. Yeah. Now that we've fulfilled our cursed duties to the Cosmic Longbox, it's time to fulfill our other cursed duties to you jerks and head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to make our must-read picks for next week. Joe Patrick, what should said jerks be picking up from their local comic book store next week, May 3rd? You're so judgmental. Yeah, well, you know. My pick for next week is Shazam! Number one from DC Comics. It's $3.99. It's written by Mark Wade with art by Dan Mora. Here's your solicit. The world's finest creators present the world's mightiest mortal in a dazzling solo series. Dinosaurs from space, the clubhouse of eternity, homicidal worms and talking tigers, atomic robots, alien worlds, mad scientists, sinister curses, and villains from throughout the DC universe. Welcome to the wild adventures of Billy Batson, whose big red alter ego defends the Earth from its weirdest and wildest threats. Want to stop Lex Luthor and the Joker? Call Superman and Batman. International crises? Page Wonder Woman. But when Gargoax, Emperor of the Moon, sets his sights on Gorilla City, that's when you shout, Shazam! The fan-favorite team of Mark Wade and Dan Mora, you know him from Batman Superman's World's Finest, brings the magic. I'm going to say it right now. now if Mark that's Wade, how you write a solicit, dude. That is a solicit. And if Mark Wade can't make us care about Shazam, nobody can. It's time to let him go. Sorry. Like, that's it. I mean, I'll agree with the first half of that statement. But this, I totally agree wholeheartedly with the sentiment of this solicit is that Shazam is not the book if you want to read a comic book about a superhero just fighting standard villains. Shazam fights weirdos. Yeah. He fights talking worms. He fights old men's old bad scientists. You know, I want to see the weirdest crap. I want to see the talking tiger. I want to see Hoppy the Marvel Bunny. Yeah. We might not get it, but, uh, you know. I don't want to see that. But I will say this is what you get a guy like Mark Wade for, to take what yeah. that character does, fun- fundamentally understand it, and revel in it. 
go, here you go. Here's exactly what it is. Talky Tawny the tiger better friggin' be here or I'm out. Like, let's get, I mean, they do, do say it. something about talking tigers. They so. do. <laughs> Matt bomb. What's your pick? I also picked a DC comic. I'm going with peacemaker tries hard book one. I love that title. <laughs> This is from DC. It's $4.99. It's written by our boy Kyle Starks. Good for him. With art by Steve Pugue. Here is your solicit. Having earned his release from the Suicide Squad, Peacemaker wants to try and do normal superhero stuff for a change. Unfortunately, everyone, including the bad guys, thinks he sucks at superhero stuff. But when busting up a terrorist ring introduces Christopher Smith to the cutest thing to ever walk albeit awkwardly, on four legs, he finds the unconditional love he's been denied his whole life. That is, until the dog is kidnapped right up from under him by a supervillain who has some very unsuperheroic plans for Peacemaker's brand of ultraviolence. Will he help an infamously unstable, superpowered criminal steal the world's most valuable and dangerous DNA? Honestly, Christopher's pretty lonely, so it probably just depends on how nicely they ask. Breakout writer Kyle <laughs> Starks, who wrote I Hate This Place and the Six Sidekicks of Trigger Keaton, and art legend Steve Puge, who worked on Preacher Special, The Saint of Killers, and Harley Quinn Breaking Glass, deliver a brutal and hilarious take on DC's biggest POS, that stands for piece of shit, that will bust guts, break bones, and melt hearts. Kyle Starks is a funny guy that writes great comics, and he is perfect to take on this new goofy status quo we have for the Peacemaker, courtesy of John Cena. Yeah, they're so they're just saying screw it. Peacemaker is now the it's John Cena is in the Suicide Squad. There you go. And And you know what? That's fine because we talked about Peacemaker in that episode where we did. where I reviewed that issue of Vigilante, and boy, that guy sucked. Yeah, so, that character is dumb. Let's call it what it is. It's dumb. So let's have yeah. fun with it, okay? <laughs> also, Steve Pugue, fun fact, Florence Pugue's dad. Did not know that, really. I thought it I was... Made, I made that. The THN must-read trade for next week is Superman, The Space Age. It's a hardcover from DC Comics. It's twenty nine ninety nine. It's written by Mark Russell, with art by Michael Allred. Here's your solicit. Uniting the critically acclaimed writer Mark Russell, you know him from One Star Squadron and the Flintstones, and Eisner winner Mike Allred, you know him from Silver Surfer and Bowie Stardust, and all kinds of other stuff. Madman, come on guys. For the first time, this series promises fans an unforgettable journey through U.S. history and culture, starring Superman. Meet Clark Kent, a young reporter who just learned that the world will soon come to an end. They're talking about Crisis on Infinite Earths. And there is nothing he can do to save it. Sounds like a job for his alter ego, Superman. After years of standing idle, the young man from Krypton defies the wishes of his fathers to come out to the world as the first superhero of the space age. And as each decade passes and each new danger emerges, he wonders if this is the one that will kill him and everyone he loves. Superman realizes that even good intentions are not without their backlash, as the world around him transforms into a place as determined to destroy itself as he is to save it. Wow, that's deep. This collects the entire Superman Space Age miniseries one through three. They were big. Yeah, prestige-like issues, yeah. They were very thick. They were very, like, 80 pages, I think. They were very long. And so $29.99 for a hardcover, that's, that is a great deal. Russell, Allred, no-brainer. Yeah. Come on. Be sure to add these comics to your pull list at your local comic shop if you want to read along with us. 
and let us know what you're reading over in our new comics channel on our Discord. And check out THN on Instagram to see our covers of the week. My pick this week was controversial. It shocked me. I was like, did we get hacked? What happened here? <laughs> Excelsior! Oh. <laughs> that is enough for THN 701. Next time, we're back reviewing new comics, and we're going to give you a little snippet of our Patreon Extra. In the meantime, check out our Nerd News Update show. It's going to hit your feed on Mondays. And join us for the THN cover-to-cover gang hang on Saturdays at 11 o'clock Central. We work too hard. It's, it's, it's just we do too much. It's ridiculous. I, I agree. Check out our Discord for details. Joe Patrick, tell them what else they can do while at the THN Discord. Have a question only a two-headed nerd can answer? Are you looking for a new read? Or do you just want to discuss our question of the week? This week's question is courtesy of Brian Domingos, who is on your personal cover artist, Mount Rushmore. The best of the best artists that created covers that called to you from the spinner rack. Now, this is an important distinction. We are not necessarily talking about artists that did interior work. These are your favorite cover artists. And since it's Mount Rushmore, we need four of them. We want all four I mean, heads on the mountain. Four of them, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. You can sign up for our Discord with the link at twoheadednerd.com slash Discord, where we've got channels for all of our segments, or you can call the THN hotline 402-819-4894 and leave a message, or you can send an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. We'll put you on the dang show. We don't like working this hard. <laughs> if you're new to the show and you'd rather blow up a few blocks of downtown than listen to any more. I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at twoheadednerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast. You don't hear no damn ads here, and it would not be possible with, without the generosity of donors like our patron, Mark Orenberger. That guy hates commercials, and that's why he gives so generously. And if you like what you hear every week, you can give generously just like Mark. It's easy to support the show. Sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to all of our alien fans because we are recording on National Alien Day. That's right. It's 426. Of course, we're talking about Ridley Scott's film that started it all and unleashed a horde of xenomorphs on nerd culture that's still bursting out of chests to this day. Word to you, nerds, and I think we can all agree... Prometheus sucks. It sucks. It screwed everything up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Say what you will about Aliens versus Predator. At least those were the monsters we were used to seeing. Okay. <laughs> Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just have a buff space jockey come beat the crap out of you. This is the two-headed nerd. Signing.